Hey, history lovers, I'm Mike Rosenwald with Retropod, a show about the past rediscovered. Every once in a while, I break free from the studio and visit some really cool places. You like the birds? Love the birds. <laughs> like the other day, when I found myself in Northern Virginia, not far from the Pentagon, standing in front of a Frank Lloyd Wright house, the Pope Leahy house, as it's called, nestled into a serene and green background, the kind of place you'd imagine on a postcard. Nobody was home except for me and a man named Peter Christensen, a longtime tour guide there. We have a single-story house on two slightly different levels because the house is designed to accommodate the hillside as opposed to excavating the hillside to accommodate the house. It's left unpainted, so it visually connects with the trees that surround us. Like many chapters in the life of the temperamental and eccentric architect, the story of this nearly 80-year-old house is odd and even a little sad. But it's also a remarkable, revealing tale about a home that foreshadowed how many Americans live today. It begins with, of all people, a journalist at a now-defunct newspaper. His name was Lauren Pope. Lauren's a copy editor for the Washington Star, and he's making $50 a week. That's certainly not enough to afford a Frank Lloyd Wright house, at least the ones he had been designing at the time, which would run about 650000 bucks in today's dollars. But in 1938, Pope saw Wright on the cover of Time magazine. The splashy story inside was a celebration of Wright nearly completing his masterpiece, Falling Water, a summer mansion in rural Pennsylvania built over a waterfall. Wright would go on to be renowned for designing these iconic homes, as well as churches, office buildings, skyscrapers, and the Guggenheim Museum in New York. But the article also mentioned that he wanted to create homes for middle-class, regular folks, people like Pope and his wife. The couple had just bought a plot of land in Falls Church, Virginia. Pope wasn't sure what style of house he wanted to build there, maybe a classic Cape Cod with a white picket fence. Lauren reads the article. He is smitten. He no longer wants that Cape Cod he thought he wanted. He wants something interesting. He wants a Frank Lloyd Wright home. Then he campaigned the architect to make him one. He knows that Wright has a bit of an ego, so he writes him a six-page letter with every blandishment he can ladle into it, using phrases like, any architect can build us a house, only you can create a home for my family. There are certain things a man wants during life, and of life. Material things, and things of the spirit. It is for a house created by you. I feel that you are the great creative force of our time. Will you create a house for us? Three weeks after writing those words, Pope received a letter back from Wright. It read, Dear Lauren Pope, of course I'm ready to give you a house. There was just one problem. Pope couldn't afford its $7,000 price tag. No banks would lend him the money, so Pope persuaded his employer, the Washington Star newspaper, to loan him the funds. Once construction began in 1940, random strangers would show up. In 2006, 
Pope told Blueprints magazine that people would walk onto the property to see the construction. He said, architects would come by and try to pick up any sets of drawings lying around. So, go, go all the way down. Christensen walked me into the narrow entryway of the Pope Leahy House. A small flight of steps led us down into an open room filled with light. We're sitting, standing in what appears to be sort of a combination library, living room. It's got a fireplace, uh, the wood paneling on the walls. The house really opens up around you. Yeah. Wright did this by putting big floor-to-ceiling windows in the living room. The windows are doors, and you can walk directly from the living room outside onto a patio. He also wanted houses to feel flowing and airy, a style we know now as the open floor plan. You're starting to do what Bright calls breaking the box. He has this idea that houses shouldn't be a series of little rectangles. He wants to break the box. He wants to integrate space but make it interesting. He's breaking the box with open space plans. With its windows and vents strategically placed and with the floor a concrete slab, the place lights and moderates temperature on its own. It was green before being green became a thing. Pope's mind was blown. I thought Mr. Wright was a genius, he told Blueprints. That's what's so amazing about Wright is that he was doing this stuff a hundred years before anybody else. Even within the walls of an innovative home designed by a master architect, there are still the trappings of life. Sadness, tragedy, regret. Lauren and Charlotte Pope, along with their three-year-old son, Ned, moved into their dream house in March of 1941. A few months later, Ned was playing outside one day and wandered off. That was my day off, Pope told the Post in an interview decades later. I was walking outside, digging on something. He just sort of got away. I wasn't paying attention, I guess. Ned drowned in a neighbor's pond. Pope blamed himself for the rest of his life. He and Charlotte had two more children, but after four years of living in the house, they decided to sell it. They had outgrown it, yes, but the walls were closing in other ways too. There was a sadness that no architectural detail could soothe. The day we left, Pope told the New York Times, I sat on the fireplace hob and wept. The new buyers were a young couple named Robert and Marjorie Leahy, who paid $17,000 for the house. They too faced challenges. In 1960, the Virginia Department of Highways sent a letter saying that it was building a new road Interstate 66, and it would go right through the house. Robert Leahy had recently died, so saving the house was left to Marjorie. She banded together with local community members and even took her case to then-Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Udall. Udall got behind the endeavor, and in 1964, Marjorie donated the house to the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Interstate 66, it was going to be built no matter what. So the National Trust did what any dedicated preservation organization would do. 
they moved the whole house about 20 miles away to Alexandria, Virginia, on land once owned by George Washington's daughter. That's right, they took everything apart, then loaded pieces of the house on flatbed trucks and put it back together. In the mid-1990s, preservationists discovered that the base of the house was cracking, so the whole thing was taken apart a second time and moved 30 feet to sturdier ground. Into the bedroom wing. Of course, no one lives there now. The National Trust preserved most of the original furniture, appliances, and decoration. Being in the house, you can understand how it might feel to live there. Peaceful, quiet, even a little spiritual. That is until... That floor is underlaid with a series of... The original landline, it's still in the house. We actually get robocalls here. So there was a robocall at the, at, 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 I mean, interrupting the, yes. the, the piece. And, <laughs> and there's another robocall. They're coming back. What would Frank Riley Bright think of this? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I'm Mike Rosenwald. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Reese Thibault for reading Lauren Pope's words in today's episode. For more forgotten stories from history, visit WashingtonPost.com slash Retropod.